a lot of things that have happened over uh, the course of the last 15 or 20 years in the NBA are, are kind of strange, and when you throw them all together, uh, you know, you, you really have to sit back and say, how can this all happen? Ladies and gentlemen, we And now, ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. What is going on, my friends? This is Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com, with another edition of BOA Audio Season 5. Coming at you this week here with the first installment of the Final Four of Season 5 for A-list superstar guests lined up for you here as we close the book on our fifth season of BOA Audio. I know we got a lot of folks out there who are first-time listeners to the program, and they are checking out the show specifically for our guest here this week, former NBA referee Tim Donaghy. I want to welcome all those new listeners. I hope you check out the program beyond just this episode. If you're into the paranormal, if you're into high strangeness, This is the show for you. We've got over 130 episodes in our archive. So if you have even a passing interest in the paranormal, stick around, dig into the BOA Audio Archive. We love to have you as part of our listening audience. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time here at the beginning of the show pitching the hardcore BOA Audio listeners to try this episode. But I will say, trust me, folks, this is way beyond merely a sports episode of the program. This is a serious conspiracy theory that we're going to be talking about here with Tim Donaghy, and it is truly an enlightening conversation. So often on this program, we've talked to a lot of people that allege a variety of different conspiracies, ranging from the plausible to the simply insane. And here on this program this week with Tim Donaghy, we're talking about something that is a little bit more down-to-earth, but at the same time, something that is truly massive, and that is the potential conspiracy behind the scenes in the NBA to favor certain players, certain teams, and hold sway over the outcomes of certain games. I'm going to break from tradition here a little bit and just give you sort of a short bio on Tim Donaghy here before I give you the thumbnail look at what we're going to be talking about for the folks who are unfamiliar with Tim Donaghy. He is a former professional basketball referee who worked in the NBA for 13 seasons from 1994 to 2007. During his career in the NBA, he officiated 772 regular season games and 20 playoff games. In the summer of 2007, he resigned from his position in the league just before reports surfaced that he was being investigated by the FBI for allegations that he bet on games he officiated during the previous two seasons. This story, of course, became a worldwide headline-making story as it exploded into the media. Eventually, Donaghy pled guilty to two federal charges related to the investigation, served more than a year in federal prison for his crimes. In December of 2009, he wrote the book Personal Foul, a first-person account of the scandal that rocked the NBA, in which he details how this whole story happened 
and his role in the betting scandal that shocked the sports world. Chances are, if you are a news junkie, you've heard of Tim Donaghy and his story. I'm almost certain that if you're a sports fan, you've definitely heard of Tim Donaghy and the scandal that erupted surrounding his deeds. So here this week on BOA Audio, we are going to really get to the bottom of the whole tale with former NBA referee Tim Donaghy. Let me give you a short thumbnail look at what we're going to be talking about here in this conversation. First of all, it is jam-packed. Obviously, we're going to cover his story, how it all started. We'll find out how he evaded an earlier NBA investigation into his gambling habits. We'll really dig into the proverbial game within the game, where relationships between referees and players, coaches, and owners can hold sway over how a game unfolds. We'll find out about the unspoken edict of preferential treatment for star players in large cities, and we'll get stories from Donaghy about his interaction with a plethora of NBA stars, including Shaquille O'Neal, Charles Barkley, Kobe Bryant, Michael Jordan, and LeBron James, as well as coaches like Phil Jackson and George Carl. Plus, we'll delve into famous incidents like the Malice at the Palace riot, where Donaghy was one of the referees, his off-the-court run-in with Rasheed Wallace, other NBA conspiracy theories, how female referees ended up in the game, and, of course, just tons and tons more. That's really just a tiny scratch at the surface of what we're going to be talking about here. Altogether, it really is a stunningly revealing edition of the program, which takes you behind the scenes of a multi-million dollar sports entertainment industry and pulls back the curtain on what's really going on in the NBA with a man who has seen it backstage and on the court, former NBA referee Tim Donaghy. I've already given you the bio for Tim Donaghy, so there is not much else left to say here at the beginning of the program. You definitely want to check out his book, Personal Foul, a first-person account of the scandal that rocked the NBA. You can find that via Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and most likely at your local bookstores. So without any further ado, let's get down to business and rock and roll. This interview was recorded on July 23, 2010. Tim Donaghy talking about the NBA betting scandal that rocked the sports world on BOA Audio Season 5. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Banal of America Audio. Very excited about this interview. Our guest is former NBA referee Tim Donaghy, and he, of course, for those folks who are unfamiliar with him, was involved in really just a huge, massive, worldwide headline story about three years ago, really, is when it all burst into the news cycle, and he was involved in a betting scandal in the NBA, served some time in jail as a result of his actions, and then wrote the book Personal Foul, a first-person account of the scandal that rocked the NBA, and appeared on 60 Minutes, and did a whole bunch of media appearances talking about it, now he's here on BOA Audio to discuss his amazing story and to give us a behind-the-scenes look at what's really going on in the NBA. And I know a lot of folks listening are BOA Audio listeners, and they're sort of like, what are you, you, know, what are you doing a sports show for, man? Yeah, I already get grief for the baseball episode. But really, you know, here on the program, we focus on a lot of times UFOs and conspiracies and stuff like that, and we very rarely, if ever, I don't think we ever have, had someone who 
was on the inside of these sort of stories. But here with Tim Donaghy, we've got someone who really was right there in the mix. I mean, he refereed some major NBA basketball games, had interaction with all of the biggest stars in the NBA, and really understands the culture of what's really going on. So we've got a true insider here. So Tim Donaghy, welcome to the program. It's a real thrill to have you on the show. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And I got to put over your book, dude. It was riveting. I mean, I read it over the course of a couple of days. I just could not put it down. I just thought it was just outstanding. And kudos to you to be brave enough to put it all out there. I mean, you know, I could see how you might want this all just to go away and for you to fade into the background. But you're still out there. And you're still making a lot of appearances and stuff. And, of course, you're on Facebook and you're working on the website, timdonaghy.com. So, uh, you know, kudos to you for at least sticking it out and dealing with the slings and arrows of <laughs> of the media, who I'm sure are still kind of uh, looking to take some shots at you here and there. Yeah, they do, but uh, it was a situation where I certainly wanted to uh, let everybody know what I did and how I actually did it. And, uh, you know, I was actually highly encouraged by not only friends and family, but by law enforcement officials to write the book. So, uh, you know, it was a situation where I think people were getting the uh, the wrong idea about how I was able to do what I did and uh, what I actually did. So I wanted to make sure that it was put out there uh, along with, uh, you know, many of the mistakes I made so that it was a, a learning experience for everybody. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. You know, to start it out, I guess, so let's do a sort of uh, like a thumbnail here on your story for people who are unfamiliar with Tim Donaghy and, and your saga of the last few years. I'll give a sort of brief thumbnail and you can sort of flesh it out for me. How's that sound? Sure. Okay. You were an NBA referee for 13 years, and over the course of, you know, your lifetime, you sort of developed this gambling addiction, and it got progressively worse, and then you sort of held back on betting on the NBA games until around November of 2003, and then you sort of decided you were going to start betting on these games because it seemed so easy to call the games based on all the inside information you had. And that sort of happened sporadically over the course of the next three years. And then around the same time frame, November of uh, 2006, ironically enough, a couple of dudes you knew from high school, you know, you think this sort of this this sort of house of cards would come tumbling down with some, you know, serious heavy hitters. But really, it's strange that, you know, two guys you knew from high school ended up uh, causing all this sort of to culminate. But uh, they, they sort of strong-armed you into making picks that got funneled to some uh, criminal elements, and that went on for about six months. And then in the spring-summer of 2007, it all came to a head uh, when the FBI started investigating the whole thing. And then you turned yourself into the FBI and, and you know, played ball with them to uh, let them know what really happened. That's a pretty good uh, description of your story, right? It is. It certainly is. It was um, a situation where I was, uh, you know, addicted to gambling, and, and I was uh, – making bets on many different occasions and I, I crossed the line like you said and started betting on NBA games and you know the word had trickled down to some people that it shouldn't have and and basically when I wanted to stop betting uh, you know these individuals picked me up and and basically threatened uh, to expose me to the NBA or worse yet have somebody visit my wife and kids in Florida and uh, they wanted to continue to be able to get these picks so uh, you know, because of the poor choices I had made in the past, I, I felt that I was put in a box and was hoping to just provide these picks for them for a period of time till the end of the regular season and uh, hopefully be released and that would be the end of it and, and never do it again. But uh, unfortunately, that's not the way it played out and uh, it put me and my family in a, in a very difficult situation that, uh, you know, is certainly uh, leaving us struggling even today. 
Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, this thing cost you everything. You know, I'm sure it just uh, it, it's just been tremendously uh, difficult to to go through, even though it was uh, a situation of your own doing. You know, but you take responsibility for that, and I respect that. So you know, I'm not here to say to judge you or anything like that. And and it, it always makes me feel uncomfortable just hearing the descriptions of you as like disgraced, like referee. I, I you know, <laughs> I don't really feel the right to <laughs> to call you disgraced, dude. I mean, that's not my. I'm not here to, to do that. So. I <laughs> know um, it's it's something I think that I was just tagged with early on, and it, it, it's a headline that everybody runs with. Um, you know, but unfortunately, when I have to look in the mirror every day, I, I have to accept that because of the of the poor choices that I made, and at some point. I hope that by sharing my story with many other people that, that they realized how important choices are that we all have to make and, and how making the right ones are so important, and, and maybe that tag at some time will uh, you know, be lifted. Let's hope so, yeah. I thought it was interesting that you note in the book that you – they actually – the NBA sort of uh, was looking at you for gambling like way before all this sort of happened because of a – incident with your neighbor who sort of like tipped them off to your pension for going to casinos and stuff like that. So, I mean, this all could have happened, you know, this all could have had a completely different turn of events if uh, they had further investigated it back in the day. Do you think they just sort of, in their minds, it was just sort of like, you know, well, he's doing some innocuous gambling, but he's not directly involved in gambling on the NBA. So we'll just sort of like look the other way on it. I think that's exactly what happened. It was a situation where, um, you know, many of the referees gambled on many different things, and, and they were aware of that. And, and the little investigation that they did that they found out that I gambled on golf or, um, you know, that I had gone to a casino on occasion is something that many other referees had done. So it was really, uh, in their mind, not a big deal, even though in the contract we weren't supposed to place a bet of any kind. So I think it was something where they just looked the other way not realizing that it had escalated into uh, a point where I was betting on professional sporting events. Yeah, and and one of the big points you make in the book is this whole issue of fixing games. And it seems like it's been portrayed in the media that you were fixing games, but you contend that this is incorrect and that you were basically making your picks based on the inside information that you had. So explain that so we can sort of like clear that whole you know, misconception of for people that think you were just out there fixing games. Right. Well, first of all, I mean, I think it's very important that you said you read the book that the FBI said that I told the truth. And, uh, you know, they invested the whole situation for game fixing. And at no time did I go out there and put a Shaquille O'Neal or Dwayne Wade or Kobe Bryant to the bench with, uh, you know, phantom fouls to make sure that a bet would win. Uh, You know, there were times where I, I did stick at the players just like, all the referees did, um, you know, if they had done something in a previous game or, you know, we wanted to get even with them for, um, you know, a certain situation. And, um, you know, what, what I did was is, is I, I made picks based on relationships, positive and negative relationships that existed between referees and players, referees and coaches, and referees and owners. And what I would do is I would create my own betting line uh, on the game and, and look in the newspaper and see what the betting line was. And if there was a difference between uh, four or five points, I would, uh, you know, tell people to bet the games. And, you know, the bottom line is is that at times there were meetings and memos that were passed down from the NBA office on uh, what to call and how to call it in a lot of these games. And I also used that information, uh, you know, to create a line and, and and to place an enormous amount of winning bets on NBA games. Yeah. In the book, you say it's like you, you had about a 70 to 80% 
hit rate, which is pretty un, you know, that's like remarkable for gambling. So it's clearly you, you knew, you knew what was going on. Exactly. And, uh, you know, the whole situation unfolded because, uh, people associated with organized crime were being funneled millions of dollars. And, uh, you know, usually the FBI doesn't get involved in, in gambling situations, uh, with organized crime, but because of the amount of money that was being funneled to them, uh, it was something that they started to look into and, and that's how they basically backtraced it, uh, to realize that I was actually a part of it. And, and sort of like along the lines of there about this inside information that you had, you say uh, in the book that when the refs make up their mind about a game, sort of like before the game, you know, they have their opinion on who's going to win, it often turns into a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, there, there's no doubt about it. There was um, definitely trends and, and things that I would pick up on, uh, you know, that referees would discuss uh, at lunchtime or in pregame meetings. And, and I would take that information uh, knowing that a certain team was going to be put at an advantage and uh, another team was going to be put at a disadvantage. And I used that information again to, like you said, place an enormous amount of winning bets on, on games. One thing that I really appreciated in the book was uh, sort of that you give credence to the idea that's sort of been around forever, I guess, or at least for the last uh, couple decades here, is that the NBA really is a superstars league where, the you know, the rules are sort of different for the, the stars than they are for the role players and stuff like that. I guess talk a little bit about that culture of, you know, protecting the superstar players. Uh, there's definitely a, a culture in the NBA to where certain players uh, – play by a different set of rules. When you talk about a Michael Jordan or a Kobe Bryant or a Dwayne Wade, you know, they're, they're going to get calls to the basket that, um, you know, a, a seventh, eighth, or ninth man on a, on a team is, is certainly not going to get. And, you know, I, I like to give the example that when I first came into the league that the veteran referees would tell me that if Michael Jordan goes to the basket and uh, it's in a crowd and, and he misses a shot, and you're not sure what happened, that you need to blow the whistle and call a foul because, you know, he's not going to miss too often. He must have been fouled. So, um, you know, it was a situation where uh, they certainly uh, trained and programmed the referees to give uh, a lot of these stars preferential treatment. There's always the contention, too, that the NBA wants certain cities to keep advancing in the playoffs and, you know, like the L.A.s and the Bostons and stuff like that. You know, how, how pervasive did you see that sort of thing going on? Yeah, I saw that many times because what happens is, is uh, you know, the referees are put in a meeting before these playoff games take place at about 11 a.m. And, you know, they go over game film and they show a certain place that they want called, uh, you know, that night. And they, want, they show you certain plays that were missed uh, in previous games that they don't want called. And it just seemed to me that I was able to pick up on trends to where certain teams were being favored on certain uh, given nights. And it, it was a lot of times it was favoring some of these big market teams and, and teams were put at an advantage and certainly other teams were put at a disadvantage. And I was able to pick up on that. And, and I don't think it's any secret uh, along the lines of star treatment that some of these big market teams get the benefit of some of these calls. Now, obviously, you noticed this and picked up on it. Was it something that was, like, openly discussed amongst the other referees, or was it just sort of like this unwritten rule or unspoken agreement that, you know, superstar players get the get the advantages and, and you know, superstar cities get the advantages, if you will? Uh, openly discussed amongst referees and uh, even group supervisors from the league office. So this is not anything that was uh, a major secret, and it was something that, uh, you know, within my cooperation uh, with the FBI that this was openly discussed, and through their investigation, they were also able to um, 
confirm that, that this was done, and, and I think that they put the NBA uh, on notice that uh, you know they were well aware that this was taking place, and, and basically to to stop it in, in, in no uncertain terms, and that um, you know information was passed along to me that you know there were going to be massive changes within the NBA. Interesting. Okay, one guy, one of your colleagues that sort of is a recurring player in the book as far as, you know, you sharing stories about how predictable his biases were, how predictable, uh, you know, his effect on the games was, was Dick Vivetta. So I guess talk a little bit about him and, you know, what you observed as far as his style of refereeing, let's say. You know, Dick Pavetta was one of those people that, uh, you know, was uh, in the league many, many years, and he was somebody that when, uh, you know, the score became uh, lopsided in a game would favor the team that was down in the game to actually allow them to save some embarrassment and bring it closer together for, for TV viewership. He was also one of those guys that, you know, refereed um, playoff series and gave the advantage to the calls to the team that was down in the series because he knew – moving forward that uh, if they would win, it would just mean another game in that playoff series, which would mean millions of dollars, uh, you know, to the NBA and to, and to the teams. And he was somebody that openly discussed that not only with me, but other referees and other referees discussed what he had done. And it was a style that uh, existed that other referees also used. So he was the main guy that, uh, you know, taught some of the younger referees the, the philosophies of what he used. When you were writing the book and everything, did you feel like, I guess, conflicted, or how'd you feel about sort of calling out your, you know, former colleagues and stuff like that in in the book? Because I mean, I would I would feel kind of like I would want to protect them or something, but you didn't seem to pull any punches as far as you know, uh, saying, you know, I guess uh, describing some of their tendencies and stuff like that. Well, I can tell you that I was certainly conflicted about naming names, and when I first sought out to do it, I tried to. You know, do it without naming names, but it, it, you know, people and the NBA fans deserve to know, um, you know, what actually was done and how it was done. And I think if I tried to hide the fact that, um, you know, certain referees did certain things, I, I wasn't putting it all out there. And, and I wanted to give it a, a true and accurate account with, um, obvious examples so that, uh, you know, my point hit home and uh, there was no misunderstanding. And, and I think, uh, you know, it was something where I, I certainly didn't want to, throw other people under the bus, but, you know, I think that, uh, you know, with the way the whole story was handled, I wanted to give everybody a certainly an accurate account and, uh, you know, give uh, certain examples so that uh, there was no misunderstanding. While we're on the Dick Bavetta angle of this all thing, let's talk about the Game 6 of the 2002 Western Conference Finals, which seems to be, you know, the most cited game as far as uh, some chicanery going on, and that was between the Lakers and the Sacramento Kings. I guess tell that story and talk a little bit about what you think really went down there. Well, I mean, obviously that's a, a pivotal game in the series. Dick Bavetta was refereeing, it, and again, his philosophy was to favor the team that was down in the series. Uh, you know, to force a game seven. And, uh, it was a situation where LA needed a win. And obviously they got the benefit of an enormous amount of calls in that game. And, and, uh, a game seven was forced. So it was, uh, one of the situations where it was, uh, very obvious that, that calls that should have went in Sacramento's favor, uh, certainly did not. And, and some strange things happened that uh, forced a game seven and, and actually changed the history of sports because uh, that year um, L.A. went on to win the championship, and I think Sacramento certainly had the best team in the league and would have closed out L.A. in, the, in that um, 
you know, infamous Game 6 and, and went on to win the championship that year. Yeah, so it's almost like a situation where they want to extend the series and then it has this whole butterfly effect of what, what happens after that. Uh, sure it does, and not only that, but, um, you know, it's it's a situation where, you know, L.A.'s a, a big market team and, and uh, you know, it's, it's great for them to be in the finals versus uh, Sacramento. I think that was also, uh, you know, a situation that, that helped the league uh, and, um, you know, unfortunately for Sacramento, you know, I've said this publicly before, I think that they should have a, a championship ring on their finger for that year, and, and unfortunately they don't. Now, you said that you, you made a lot of your predictions, obviously, based on certain referees' biases and stuff like that, you know, dislike of certain players and coaches and owners. How did you keep your biases in check when you were a referee, and, you know, did you ever let those biases, you know, affect your judgment during the games? I think when you talk about, uh, you know, the biases and, and, and what takes place in, in the NBA games or situations where you don't want to go out and just flat out make up calls against uh, certain individuals, but I think you make sure you, you don't let anything slide uh, when they're involved, and I think you have somewhat of a, a quicker trigger when it comes to technical fouls on, on those type of players. So um, I think it's um, – Something where every referee in the league, especially referees that have 10 or more years in the league, have, um, you know, both positive and negative relationships that exist within the league. And, and I took those relationships and, and I used them to, to place winning bets on the games. Now, we'll get to uh, Rashid Wallace in a little bit. I'm a big Rashid fan uh, for his antics. But uh, obviously, <laughs> when I read your book, I was surprised that he had a story of his own involving you. But were there certain, before we get to that, were there certain players you know, that you had particularly good relationships with uh, before we sort of get into the negative aspects? I mean, there, there are always players. I mean, certain players are, are much more professional than other players. And, and uh, you know, I'll give you an example of David Robinson. Uh, he's just uh, somebody that uh, is, is a true professional. And, and when it comes to him, you know, obviously you um, don't want to be in a situation where uh, you screw a guy over like that and, and miss a call. So, um you know, it's a it's a positive and a negative relationship. Maybe some players aren't going to get those marginal calls, but somebody like David Robinson is because of how um, professional and and um, kind he is towards the referees on most given nights. Yeah, yeah. So it's like if you're you know if you're if you're cool with the referees, if you don't give them a hard time, you know, when you get calls against you and stuff like that, they'll give you the benefit of the doubt later on down the line, sort of thing. Yeah, no doubt about it. And, and some guys that, you know, just want to play that jerk role are, are put in a situation where, you know, they're not going to get the benefit of the doubt. And, uh, you know, it, it happens on a, a nightly basis. Well, I, let's talk a little bit about the uh, the Rasheed Wallace thing, because I was stunned by this whole aspect of, of your story, because I always found Rasheed Wallace to be pretty entertaining for his antics. And then I, I read your book and was, like, stunned uh, by, by what happened with that whole thing. So I guess share the story of your run-in with Rasheed Wallace uh, after the game and, and what happened there. Uh, it was a situation where during the game he threw the ball at one of our other referees after a foul was called. And, uh, you know, I asked him not to throw the ball at him, and he cursed at me, and I gave him a technical foul. And he, he felt that he didn't deserve the technical foul. Portland ended up winning the game by like 20 points, and I think he had, uh, you know, one of the best games of the year. And uh, he just waited for me outside in the parking lot and and started to scream and curse at me. And and I said something back to him, and he actually wanted to fight me and and, and rushed me, and uh, you know was was ready to knock my teeth down my throat. And and <laughs> fortunately for me, some people grabbed him at the last minute before he was able to do so. And 
he was given a, a pretty hefty fine and suspension because of it. What's it like out there when you're, you know, when you make a call against a guy? What do they usually say to you? Because obviously we can't hear it when we're watching on TV. But like, what's what's the interaction like between the players and the, and the referees? You know, when when all that kind of stuff's going down as far as giving fouls to people and stuff. I mean, they're calling you every name in the book if they're disagreeing with you, and it's a situation where, uh, as a referee, you have to earn some respect so they're not continually yelling, screaming, and cursing at you because once you allow one player to do it, the other players start to do it. So, um, you know, you have to basically draw a line in the sand and, and gain your respect or else, uh, you know, you're not going to have any and, and the game's going to be chaos. So, um, you know, there's there's players like Rashid and Steven Jackson that uh, – will come after you on a, on any given night if you allow them to do that. So it's a situation where you just have to earn your respect from them. I see what you're saying, yeah. I think you have a good story in there. I forget the name of the coach, uh, but one coach was riding you pretty bad uh, in the first game that he had. Next time you were referee and he was the coach, uh, you teed him up like right away as soon as the game started pretty much. Just to set yeah, that was, uh, that was George Carl. Yeah. And, uh, he was one of those guys that was real hard and tough on young referees, and until you earned your respect from him, you know, he just he just rode you all night long. So that's how you basically uh, were able to get them to get off your back was to issue them a technical foul. Yeah. It's all sort of described in the book, as you say, uh, the game within the game, which I found just completely fascinating because, like, there's so much more going on there than what, you know, what at first you think is going on. It's really, uh, it's really pretty fascinating stuff. Sort of along those lines, it seems like uh, you point out in the book that the younger referees, like the, uh, you know, the coaches sort of zero in on those guys and, and sort of wear them down over the course of the game and to the point where they're almost afraid to call fouls near the end of the game because they've been hearing it from the referee the whole time. Yeah, it's, it's a situation where, um, you know, guys like George Carl and Jerry Sloan and, and Larry Brown are masters at, you know, manipulating uh, young referees and even some of the veteran referees over the years that uh, they're able to, you know, put pressure on and, and get some calls from. It's, it's a situation where the league office, uh, you know, doesn't allow referees to just tee coaches and players up and throw them out of the game because people pay an enormous amount of money to, to sit in the stands and see these guys. So it's like, uh, you know, some way you have to survive and get these guys off your back. Uh, if you give them that first technical foul because you don't want to be in a position where you're ejecting them and getting some heat from the league office and needing to explain yourself. So sometimes uh, referees will, will give some calls and, and marginal calls to some of these players if they're giving them a lot of grief to get them off their back. The NBA denies it, but it seems like makeup calls are pretty much like a given uh, in any game. Is that fairly accurate, would you say? Uh, absolutely, and uh, it's kind of um, insulting to a lot of uh, basketball fans and sports fans that uh, they deny the fact that uh, makeup calls and star treatment don't exist in the NBA because uh, I think there's an enormous amount of evidence that uh, it, it certainly does exist. One of my buddies there who's a big basketball fan, he wanted to know why Rasheed Wallace gets technicals all the time. Is that just because he complains all the time? Uh, I just think that uh, he, he's uh, one of those guys that is constantly complaining, screaming and cursing and, and thinking that, you know, he's getting, uh, you know, screwed, which, you know, you know, a lot of the referees don't like him. So he, he is right in a way. He uh, probably gets a little bit less rope than a lot of other people. So, um you know, that's probably why. How were things after the Rashid run-in? Was it when you refereed games with him after that? Was it was it still okay? I mean, or, or was it sort of like tense between the two of you guys? 
Uh, it was always tense, and uh, you know, it was a situation where I think his first game back, I was the referee, and it was in Philadelphia, and uh, I ended up giving him a technical foul in that game, and, and Scotty Pippen came off the bench laughing and said that they had taken bets in the locker room to see how quick um, it would be before uh, I had given him a technical foul, and he kind of thought that it was hysterical. <laughs> Let me see. Were there any players that, that you, aside from Rasheed, were there any players that you had particularly, or owners or, or coaches that, you, you know, you had a you know, particularly difficult time dealing with? Yeah, I think Jerry Sloan was somebody that was, uh, you know, very difficult to deal with because he liked to uh, – you know, scream, yell, and curse at the referees, and for whatever reason, he was a uh, you know he was allowed to take uh, you know a couple steps further than ever, than any other coach was allowed to to take in regard to how he you know talked to referees. So he was somebody that that in my mind was very difficult to deal with. And now, what about uh, the other guy? The, the other big name we haven't talked about really is Michael Jordan. Uh, what, what kind of re- interaction did you have with him? Um, you know, during your days as a referee. You know, I really didn't have much interaction with him. Uh, you know, when when he was in the league, he was um, uh, I was a little bit of a younger referee, and I just try to keep to myself in regard to him. But you know, he, he was a guy that uh, you know was definitely uh, someone who played by a different set of rules than than a lot of the other players. So I think that's where it all started with uh, all the star treatment. Yeah, yeah, that's what you said earlier. Now I thought also it was interesting too, uh, just to to throw it back to just sort of like. It, it's almost quaint the story you share in the in the book about that you refereed the three point contest in the All Star game and made a bet with uh, you know like a league official right there on the court in front of everybody and you know the supervisor was there and he saw it and he was laughing about it and everything so it was like it wasn't a big deal or something like that. Yeah, I mean there was a lot of little things that went on you know around the league where. Um, you know, a lot of the referees were, were betting, or you could see the players betting, uh, you know, in, on warm-up shots before the game. But it was just, uh, you know, something that was accepted. Uh, you know, obviously they didn't think that somebody like myself would become addicted and, and, and cross that line that, that uh, you know, nobody should be near. And, and unfortunately for me and for the league, uh, you know, that's what happened. But, you know, like I said before, it's uh, uh, hopefully a learning experience for everybody involved, and, and the NBA can get a lot of things corrected and become bigger and better and stronger than ever before. And the interesting part about uh, the whole book in general, too, is like once you read this book, first of all, you never really look at the NBA and the NBA games the same way again, but then you wonder how how far this sort of culture of bias extends to all the other sports and stuff like that. And, and it's really quite an eye-opener because I've never heard of any uh, – any official from any of the big sports sort of like coming out like what happened with you and, and really sort of like pulling the curtain back on, on what it's really like there. Yeah, it is, but I think the problem in the NBA is that the subjectivity is so widespread on what's a foul and what's not a foul that it uh, needs to be closed. That gap is is just too big, and it's a situation where certain referees can call, call certain fouls one way and other referees are calling certain fouls another way and instead of just enforcing the rules based upon how they're written in the rule book, uh, I think the other the other sports have um, you know a, a closed gap on that, and that's why the the NBA is um, in a situation where um, you know people don't believe a lot of things that they take place and, and why they're called. The other thing you mentioned in the book that I thought was really interesting was that uh, the NBA monitors the TV coverage and will call in if they don't like what the announcers are talking about. 
So I thought that was really remarkable in, in just the sheer level of control they have over, over you know, the presentation of, of the show. Enormous amount of control. They have somebody that sits in uh, New Jersey and monitors what's said over these national TV uh, telecasts. And if there's something that's, uh, you know, being, being misrepresented or they don't like what's being said, they'll call the truck and have the producer relay a message to the uh, announcer to, to straighten things out or to, or to um, you know, not discuss the things that, that they're discussing. And it's um, something that they have a you know, control on everything that takes place in the league. Yeah, it's, uh, it's just unbelievable. I guess talk a little bit about sort of like the structure of oversight on these referees because, uh, you know, it's not like there's layers upon layers involved. And then, you know, like when I read your book, David Stern doesn't seem to get involved in the whole story till like the very end when the scandal broke. So it's like it doesn't sound like you had much interaction with him at all uh, you know, leading up to all this, but maybe that's not the case. But I guess talk a little bit about sort of like, you know, the oversight structure there and how involved uh, David Stern was in that, and you know, the, the actual NBA part of it. Well, actually, I really um, only had any conversation with David Stern in, in meetings uh, at the beginning of the year when he would come in and give a speech to the referees. So uh, what they did is that they had a supervisor of officials and then a lot of group supervisors that would oversee the referees and pass along messages from the league office. So that's where we got our directives from, especially during playoff times when you were in meetings and, and these group supervisors would come in and, and discuss with you one of the uh, – the league office wanted to call and show you examples uh, on videotape that either happened in previous games or that happened during the regular season that they wanted controlled and called on any given night. And, you know, like I said before, it was a situation where uh, I was able to determine that um, it would put one team or another at an advantage or a clear disadvantage. And, and sometimes the messages were, were crystal clear and other times they were uh, just subtle. But, uh, you know, I was able to pick up on them and, and to my uh, disgrace, you know, cross a line that I shouldn't have been near and use that information to, to place an enormous amount of winning bets on games. All right. So you're saying it's sort of like there was the structure of referees and everything, and then there was the NBA office. That was sort of like a separate thing, and then they sort of used – I guess you could say they were like your bosses or whatever, so they sort of like oversaw all that stuff and then swayed you in different directions as as they wanted things to go. Exactly, because what they would do is they would grade you based on the calls that you made in that game, and if they wanted certain things called uh, in that game and they discussed those things with you during the day, uh, you know, obviously you got a better grade for that game that night, and, and the goal was to get the best grade you could to advance in the playoffs, and uh, the further you advanced, the more money you made. So obviously you wanted to please those people that ran those meetings because they were the ones that were grading you. Now, based on the the people that you interacted with as far as the other referees and stuff go, and the guys who've been around for a long time, like how long has this culture of bias been in place? You know, is this something that's been going on forever? Like, or did it sort of just emerge with the Jordan era or with the Magic Bird era or something like that? I think it started to emerge with the Jordan era when, uh, obviously he started to play, uh, you know, with a certain, uh, different set of rules than, than other places, players were playing with. And, uh, I think it just over time evolved, uh, you know, to, to where every team had that one star player that was given that special treatment, uh, every given night that they were on the floor. And I just think it's something that, uh, you know, the referees were, were, 
um, trained and programmed and, and discussed on how to treat certain players differently because of their status, and uh, it evolved into you know a point where it just uh, was out of control. You also share a couple cool sort of like interesting. I guess you could say little games within the game that the referees played with each other, sort of like uh, who'd uh, hold out longest to uh, give the first foul and who'd give the first technical. I guess talk a little bit about sort of those little uh, games within the games that you guys played uh, for bets and stuff like that. Yeah, we used to um, bet $20 a guy on who could hold out the longest in, in calling a foul uh, to start the game, and, and we throw the ball up and – Everybody be running up and down the floor, and some players would be getting whacked alongside the head, and, and you know people wouldn't be blowing the whistle because they didn't want to be responsible to pay the the ball boy fee for the other two referees. And you know, uh, we also had uh, little games to where we would bet twenty dollars on who'd be the first person uh, to give uh, somebody like a Rashid Wallace or a Stephen Jackson a technical foul in the game, and. Uh, it was just little things that we did to add some excitement to the night. Now, obviously, the players, they had no idea this was going on, right? This wasn't like something where they were like, oh, shit, dude, you you playing this game again, man? What what the hell? Or anything like that? No, no, never at one time did uh, did they ever catch on. But I can tell you sometimes to start the, the game, you know, people would be looking at us like, you know, what the heck's going on out here? I just got fouled, and this guy just got fouled, and nobody's blowing the whistle. So, uh, you know, uh, I'm sure – things ran through their mind as to what the heck's going on out here tonight, but uh, never did it ever, uh, you know, become public knowledge as to what we were doing. Right, right. And it does seem like, you know, up until what happened to you, it does seem like it was sort of like, I guess, an unspoken thing amongst the players and, and sort of like the people in the league and everything, that there was this culture of bias going on. No doubt about it. I mean, the players knew that it existed, uh, the coaches knew that it existed, and the owners knew that it existed. So it's, uh, it, it certainly was not really a hidden secret. I mean, the NBA never would come out and admit it, but, uh, you know, you, you can talk to any retired referee or, or any, uh, you know, body that was a coach in the, re- in the league and, and is now not, not working. Um, it certainly existed and everybody knew that it did and it's something that uh the league certainly needs to straighten out to to have the fans feel that you know everybody's on an even playing field and and every team's on an even playing field and moving forward everybody has a fair chance at winning on every any given night and and in the book when you're talking about uh Dick Bavetta and you say that some of the referees went to uh Michael Jordan's camp, and Michael Jordan was talking about it, and he said that Dick Bavetta cheated, and you sort of raised the rhetorical question of, you know, is it cheating to subtly influence the game so that it's more competitive, or is he really being a company man? I guess I just want to turn those rhetorical questions around on you. I mean, what do you think? Is it cheating, or is it that he's sort of manipulating the game for the excitement of the fans, but at the end of the day, the better team will still win? Well, I think that's what they hope for, but at times I think it backfires on them. Uh, and the right team doesn't win, but it, it's a situation where the league office knew that uh, certain referees were doing this, and, and the league office used those referees, uh, you know, in certain playoff games to to help make sure that some of these big market teams advanced, or to help uh, make sure that some of these uh, playoff series were extended to a, a game five, six, or seven. So. Uh, it, it was no secret that um, many people knew what he did, even in the league office and, and other referees. So uh, I think it was just a culture that existed that, um, you know, uh, it became a form of entertainment. And it, it just wasn't a true athletic competition. 
but uh, I'm hoping moving forward with, with this book and and some uh, of the investigation that the FBI did that uh, you know things change. That's the hope, right? I mean, you you got to hope that things will get turned around here because it does seem pretty suspect. Although since your story broke, it it's like the referees are definitely more under the microscope than ever before. They are. They are certainly under the microscope, and uh, it's a situation where I, I think that. Um, you know, the, the league needs to just let them enforce the rules based on what's in the rule book and not have these subtle messages that they that go back and forth game uh, after game after game and, and, and not try to change things and, and allow them to just go out there and call what they see and, and not referee certain teams or certain personalities. And I think that the, it would come across as a, a much fairly officiated contest. Absolutely, yeah. Now, another referee you talk about in the book who comes up quite a bit is uh, Joey Crawford. So I guess talk a little bit about him and his style of officiating and how, you know, you could use his style of officiating to sort of as a, a bellwether of the way the game was going to be played out. Well, I mean, Joe was one of those guys that had a quick temper and, and um, you know, didn't take a lot of uh, grief from anybody. And, and I know when, uh, you know, there was a game to where uh, a certain team got away with doing a lot of things uh, one night, if he had a game, uh, you know, with that team, um, soon after that, that he would take care of business and, and, and either, uh, issue some technical fouls and, and not allow them to embarrass the referees that, uh, you know, a certain team was going to be put at a disadvantage. And, you know, again, it, it all came down to relationships, positive and negative relationships that existed. And I used those to, to place winning bets on games. Well, I know, uh, I thought it was, Really ironic and interesting that you were the referee at the infamous game, uh, the Malice at the Palace, and uh, the the riots that happened and all that. So I guess, like, share your perspective on what went down there and what it was like to be right in the eye of the hurricane uh, that was that big riot in Detroit. Yeah, it was uh, it was certainly a scary moment because uh, you know that thing escalated so quick, and it's it's something that uh, you know you never think would happen. And and when you talk about fans coming onto the floor and fighting with players and players going into the stands and fighting with fans and and there's no way to control it or or stop it It, it's a very scary thing when chairs are flying and and um you know things are flying out of the stands coins and different things so it was uh you know definitely a scary moment and and hopefully it's something that will never happen again in any uh professional sporting event yeah it seems like it just sort of like uh caught fire all of a sudden out of nowhere. That's the way you sort of describe it in the book. Now, when it all went down, what, what did you do? Just get the hell out of there? Well, we uh, actually were there for a couple minutes trying to calm things down, but when we knew that, uh, you know, it, it wasn't going to calm down in any way, shape, or form, we, we certainly all ran for the locker room. So uh, <laughs> you know, it, it, it was it was definitely a scary moment, but, uh, you know, I think uh, we're lucky that uh, none of us were, was actually hurt. Now, did you guys catch heat with the league for all that, or was it sort of like, you know, beyond your control as it is? Uh, no, we did catch a little bit of heat because they felt like we should have stepped in and got between the players a little quicker. And if we would have done that, it's, it's a possibility that it wouldn't have escalated to to, to what it did. But, you know, it, it's a situation where the league office always has to come down and, and uh, blame the referees uh, when, when certain things happen, and, and that's what they do uh, there's a lot of things that take place that the league office doesn't support the referees in, uh, you know, because they're basically the necessary evil. Yeah. Since the whole scandal broke, I know that David Stern sort of put down the order there that people weren't supposed to talk to you or anything like that. But have you heard from any former colleagues or players or coaches or owners or anything like that? I mean, you don't have to name names or anything like that, but 
Uh, have you heard from anybody in the NBA, like, since all this went down, either thanking you or angry at you for, for what you did? Uh, no, actually, nobody that was actually angry. I had a couple people that were, uh, uh, you know, in a situation where they read the book and they actually liked the book uh, a lot, and they're hoping that, you know, the book, you know, adds a tremendous amount of change, and it's something that they have discussed with me and said that they don't feel the change is going to happen too quickly because that would be admitting that a lot of things in the book are are correct. So well, over a period of time, they're they're hoping that, um, you know, the game is is begun to be refereed, uh, you know, based on the rules in the rule book and not based on personality or, or big market teams. And, uh, you know, there's some referees that have been kind of, uh, you know, sliding down the the scale of, of where the NBA had them rated before and seems like they're being pushed out uh, because, uh, you know, they were kind of exposed to, to what they had been doing over the years. So I think over time you're going to see a, a, some change take place. Yeah, and one of the interesting aspects, too, about the book is that you sort of, uh, beyond the culture of bias, there's also this sort of culture within the referees and the hierarchy of the referees of sort of like failing upwards. Like uh, the guys who got the the jobs as supervisors and stuff were like the mediocre referees, which makes you wonder if that's because they, you know, maybe they were so grateful to keep advancing and everything like that that they were easier to manipulate or something like that. But I guess talk about that culture of failing upwards uh, as far as the referee hierarchy goes. Yeah, it, it was very strange that, you know, you had referees that uh, became group supervisors in charge of the on-court referees that basically failed uh, as referees on the floor and were fired after two or three years uh, somehow, some way, they were then rehired and uh, were in charge of giving instruction to to referees, uh, you know, during the regular season and, and during these playoff series. So it, it was very, very strange how um, you know the whole management system exists in the NBA, and, and I think it was just a, a control, uh, you know, situation within the league office that they needed to have people in these positions that they could control and, and get to pass along messages of what they wanted done. Next question. What, Chuck? I'm sitting here watching the press conference. Nice suit. Thank you, Chuck. I'm busy right now. I need some socks. I need them for my footsies. About six to ten pairs. Chuck, I gotta go. Hey, 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 hey. Give me them socks. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Many, many years ago, I was doing a story then for the New York Times on Moses Malone. Moses was shifting from the ABA to the NBA. And my first question was an incredibly intricate question. It went on for three to four minutes with thousands of clauses. And I was trying to get him to be incredibly introspective. What did he say? What, what's his answer? His exact answer to me, which I've remembered for 35 years, was, that's what bees. That's it. I love that answer. That's it. That says it all. It sounds like you were pretty, I mean, some of the stories about your gambling is just intense. I mean, like, there, there are some people that think that, you ended up betting on the NBA because you got so in debt that you sort of had to turn to that as a last resort. But, I mean, maybe you – obviously, you'd know better than anybody. So was it sort of like – was it just that it was just so easy that why why wouldn't you bet on it? You were so, I guess you could say, like such a gambling junkie that it didn't even matter to you anymore? Or was it sort of like a desperation thing where you needed the, the you know, the safe bet? No, it wasn't a desperation thing at all. I was making close to $300,000 a year, and I, and I wasn't a, a, a big better. I was just – uh you know, an addicted gambler, and, and when you talk about an addiction, you talk about doing things that you rationally know are wrong, but for whatever reason, you do them anyway. And 
uh, you know, I wanted to bet on anything and everything that I could. And with the knowledge that I had, I, you know, I was sucked in. And, and with my buddy, I, I just wanted to be the man and, and show him that, you know, these things were predictable. And, and, you know, I passed along the information to him, and he just was, uh, you know, in a position where he couldn't believe that it was so predictable. And, you know, I continued to pass along the information to him. Now, this is your buddy that you became friends with uh, at the country club and everything else, right? Yes, Jack. Yeah. I presume that that, that relationship's over now based on just the way things shook out, right? It, it is. I mean, I haven't had any conversations with him. He was basically, um, you know, for whatever reason, let off the hook and never prosecuted uh, uh, with the rest of us. But, uh, you know, that's something that, uh, you know, I wouldn't wish on anybody knowing what it did and, and how it destroyed my family. But, um it was uh, it was a situation where I haven't uh, had any contact with him. Yeah, it's unfortunate uh, in that regard. Cause it sounded like you guys were pretty good friends and everything. So yeah, we were. Have you talked to the two guys from when you were in your high school days? Have you had? Did you have any interaction with them uh, when all this after this all went down and everything? No, I haven't had any uh, interaction with them. Uh, it's a situation where because of probation, you're restricted from talking to other convicted felons. Uh, I know Batista and Mark. Martino were actually put in the same Brooklyn jail, and then, uh, you know, Batista had, uh, you know, basically put a hit out on Martino in the jail for somebody to do uh, some harm to him because he kind of cooperated along the same lines that I did. So they ended up uh, moving uh, Martino out of that jail and putting him in a different jail in, in, in Boston, Massachusetts. So, um, uh, you know, I, I don't see that uh, the three of us would, would have any conversations now or in the, in the future with the way everything went down. Yeah, yeah. At the end of the book, I thought it was interesting that you that you endorse Mark Cuban as a potential future NBA commissioner, which I thought was interesting because it, like <laughs> it sounded like his relationships with the referees were sort of ran hot and cold depending on who the referee was and that the league certainly didn't really like him very much because he was sort of like the squeaky wheel. But I guess uh, talk a little bit about Mark Cuban and why you think that, you know, he'd make the a good commissioner for the NBA eventually. Well, I think that Mark Cuban is, is one of those guys that just wants the rules enforced uh, based on how they're written in the rule book, you know, no matter what they are. And uh, it's a situation where he wants to build his team and his coaching staff around the rules and put himself in the best position to win. And, and when you talk about having a set of rules that aren't being enforced, you know, it just uh, creates a lot of confusion for everybody. And he's just one of those guys that, uh, you know, is adamant about enforcing the rules based upon how they're written. And, and I think, uh, you know, that's what the fans need to know is taking place so that they have, uh, you know, some confidence that uh, the product on the floor is, is a situation that, is, is fair for everybody. Now, I know that in the book you say those that, you know, the referees talk about, like, everything, that they sort of gossip about everything. Now, one famous sort of uh, conspiracy theory uh, surrounding the NBA is that Michael Jordan, when he left to play baseball, was secretly suspended uh, for gambling, which ironically enough obviously is, is <laughs> was your forte. So did you ever hear that story, and, and what do you make of that whole conspiracy theory? Uh, it's certainly something that was discussed uh, amongst, uh, you know, referees and, and team personnel with referees that that he was, uh, you know, sent on a, um, you know, basically a, a year away from the game because of his gambling habits to try and uh, get his, um, 
you know, stuff together so that that wouldn't be exposed. So, uh, you know, there's there's no concrete evidence that that was uh, what had happened, but it certainly was openly discussed about, uh, you know, how he and David Stern came to a conclusion that he was going to step away from a, the game for a while until things calmed down. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, I'm sure it would be sort of the hard thing, a hard sort of thing to get any concrete evidence on, I'm sure, if it was, especially with some kind of backroom deal. Right. I mean, there's probably two people that know about it, and one's Michael Jordan, who's now an owner, and David Stern, who's the commissioner. So uh, I don't think it's a situation where either one of them are going to come up and, and say that it happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, now, what about uh, the other the other big conspiracy theory is the Knicks uh, winning the, the draft lottery there, and a lot of people think that there was some chicanery involved in that. Did you ever hear that whole story? And, and you know, what what, did the, what was the consensus among the referees on that whole thing? I know that was a little bit before your time as a referee. That was. It was slightly before my time, but, you know, of course it was openly discussed that, uh, you know, that one envelope was put in the freezer before, uh, you know, the whole uh, draft lottery so that when he stuck his hand in there, he could find it real easy. So, um you know, it, it certainly was openly discussed, but as, as to whether it actually happened or not, I, you know, I have no idea. But, uh, you know, a lot of things that have happened over uh, the course of the last 15 or 20 years in the NBA are, are kind of strange. And when you throw them all together, uh, you know, you, you really have to sit back and say, how can this all happen? Yeah. Well, on that note, what, what other sort of strange things have you heard that, that maybe I haven't come across before uh, as far as these weird sort of occurrences? I think, uh, you know, most of them is just in these playoff series, how, uh, you know, a lot of these, uh, playoff series turn, turn around and, and somebody like LA comes back and wins and, and is given the, uh, benefit of an enormous amount of free throws and calls in the fourth quarter in, in, in these games. And, uh, you know, it's just situations that, uh, when you really sit back and look at them, uh, you know, you can't believe they take place, but yet the NBA tries to stand behind the fact that, uh, you know, it was just a few missed calls by the officials. Yeah, yeah, but really it, it, it speaks to something larger than that, right? Right. Now, what about this year's uh, NBA Finals? Uh, was there any chicanery you think involved in, in that? I'm a Boston fan, Boston born and raised, so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm obviously biased myself on this, but I know you closely watched the NBA Finals and posted about it at Deadspin, so, um, you know, what, what did you think about how it all played out? I mean, I think it played out. It was, uh, you know, basically a situation where the the NBA, uh, you know, couldn't have planned it any better. A seven-game series, two of the big market teams in there. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I just think that it was um, a situation where, uh, you know, the referees didn't do as good a job as, as they probably could have. But, um, you know, it just seemed like uh, L.A. seemed to get a lot of the benefit of a lot of calls uh, in, in the right situations. And, uh you know, you know, Boston struggled at times, and um, you know, it, it was it was a situation where LA just won. Let's talk a little bit about some of these various superstars. What kind of interaction did you have with uh, Shaq? You know, Shaq was one of those uh, you know fun-loving guys that really uh, at times didn't give the referees a hard time. We would just let you know that um, you know people paid an enormous amount of money to see him on the floor and, and, and not to be calling cheap fouls on him. I thought it was interesting in the book that you know that uh, he asked them to deflate the ball a little bit for him, and, and they did, which I thought was kind of interesting because obviously that's probably not allowed. <laughs> no, the, uh, there has to be a certain amount of air pressure in the ball, and uh, before the game a lot of times he would come up to the referees and, and ask them to get a needle and, and let some air out 
which would, you know, allow that uh, little soft touch of his around the basket or, or with the free throws to allow the, uh, you know, the ball to get into that hoop just a little bit easier. Now, what about uh, what about Charles Barkley? You have a great story in there about Charles Barkley and uh, a bucket of ice. Tell that story uh, for folks so I don't ruin it for them. <laughs> yeah, it was a situation where during the game he was giving me some heat and, and I gave him a technical foul and and uh, he was all over me and Rudy Tomjanovich came up to me and said that, uh, you know, the technical foul is unwarranted. Charles wouldn't complain like that if, if he was right and, and I, I basically ended up having a bet with Rudy Tomjanovich, um, you know, uh, for uh, a dinner over who was right and who was wrong at the end of the game. We we both looked at the play on a videotape, and, and Rudy uh, admitted that I was right and, and went in and, and gave Charles some grief over it. And, uh, you know, I went into the shower, and Charles came into the locker room and, and emptied the drinks out of a big uh, uh, container of um, Gatorade and, and ice and then threw it all over me and kind of, uh, you know, got his jollies off and, and, and pranced out of there laughing uh, because uh, I guess that was his way of getting even with me because Rudy went in and gave him some grief. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I thought it was interesting that in the book you say that, you know, uh, you could have made a lot of trouble for, for Barkley after that and gotten him in a bunch of trouble with the league, but it was sort of like better to just to play ball, no pun intended, and... um you know, that way he'd sort of be indebted to you, wouldn't give you as much of a hard time in the future, right? It was. It was a situation where I let it go, and, and the next time I saw him, he kind of winked at me and thanked me and, and uh, you know, knew that I let him off the hook and probably saved him a big fine in the suspension, and, and, and he kind of backed off and laid off me, and he was one of those, uh, you know, players that was really tough on referees, especially young referees, so it really helped me a lot. Yeah, interesting. See, these are the kind of things, like you say, the game within the game, it's, it's really uh, – it's really fascinating stuff. Now, what about Kobe Bryant? You say in the book that he's sort of, uh, well, he's sort of like the new Jordan, if you will, uh, that, that his style of interaction with the referees was a lot different from Jordan's and that Jordan sort of, um, I think you intimated in the book that he wasn't, you know, sort of in your face about calls and stuff, but uh, Kobe Bryant was a lot different. Yeah, I mean, Kobe's somebody that, uh, you know, definitely will let you know that, he, that he's the marquee player in the league at this time, and, and he should uh, be playing by a different set of rules. And, and during free throws and during timeouts, he's going to definitely approach you and let you know that, that he feels that uh, he's not getting the benefit of those star treatment calls. And uh, he's somebody that's very adamant about, um, you know, getting on the referees if he, he feels like he's not getting that star treatment. And what's, like, when you're a referee, what's the reaction to that sort of thing? Is it sort of like you have to begrudgingly accept that they're they're right in the sense that, that within the framework of the way the league is that, that they're right, even though they're they're wrong within the sense of the rules? Hey, there's no doubt about it. And, and you know, he ends up uh, working the referees, especially some of the younger referees. And, and, you know, a lot of the veteran referees will fall for that, too. And he'll, he'll uh, you know, end up getting to the free throw line on, on cheap marginal plays that, are going to be let go for for somebody else, and it's a you know it's a situation in the NBA where the squeaky wheel gets the oil, whether it's the players or it's uh, or it's the coaches, and they're very well aware of that. And, and, and you know, like you said, it's a game within the game of working the referees. Now, this past NBA Finals, we did see that he got that Kobe Bryant got uh, fouled out in the second game. Now, do you think that was sort of like them making a statement that? the star treatment isn't totally predictable sort of thing? Well, I mean, I think it's a situation where my book had come out and, uh, you know, it's a, it's um, one of those things where they're trying to, uh, you know, 
act like it doesn't happen, but, you know, it, it certainly does, and, and it depends on what group of referees are out on the floor that night if they're going to have the, the guts to enforce the rules, uh, you know, the way they're written. And then it also depends on, uh, you know, a situation on who's up and who's down in the series. And I think that was a situation where um, L.A. had won the first game, so it wasn't, a, you know, going to be a big deal if they had lost the second game and he had fouled out because it would be tied one game apiece. Yeah. Now, what about LeBron James? Uh, you don't seem to mention him too much in the book. What was your interaction like with him uh, as a player? He was kind of quiet um, and, uh, you know, really didn't complain much. He was still young when I was in the league. So, uh, you know, it wasn't a point where he was the, the marquee player that he is today. So I'm sure he's a lot more vocal out on the floor today than he was, uh, you know, three years ago. It seems that way, yeah. Yeah, it seems that way. Now, what do you make of... I'm sure you're still an NBA fan, so I mean, what do you make of him leaving Cleveland, going to Miami, and, and this sort of uh, triumvirate of stars that's forming down in Miami? Yeah, you know, I, I kind of think that it's not right. You know, he was drafted by uh, Cleveland. Uh, they were going to give him uh, more money than what he had gotten in Miami, and, and I just find that... Uh, you know, it's a situation where it's, you know, the league allowed that to happen. It's a situation where it's another, uh, you know, bigger market team, Miami over Cleveland, getting the benefit of, uh, you know, three-star players. And, and it's what's, you know, good for the league. And, uh, you know, it's most likely going to be a situation where you're going to have Miami and L.A. in the finals this coming year. That seems to be the case. Yeah, that seems to be the case. And you'd think that just based on what we've established here in this conversation with the, the culture of bias as far as star players go, um, you know, that's going to be a very difficult team to beat for some of these, uh, you know, small market teams or teams without any stars. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. I mean, you have three of the uh, top players in the game and Bosch, Wade, and, and LeBron on, on the floor, and they're going to be very difficult to defend. And, uh, you know, let alone the fact that, uh, you know, they're going to play by a different set of rules than some of the other players are going to uh, be playing by. So they're going to be very difficult to beat. And, uh, you know, it's a situation where, um, you know, some of these small market teams are, are going to be, um, you know, hard to, hard to uh, you know, get some wins when they play some of these teams. And then I think you see it now where Chris Paul wants to, uh, you know, be traded immediately because he doesn't feel that he has any shot at all winning where he's at. Yeah. Now, do you do you think this is says something about the league sort of changing in a way where it's like maybe as opposed to sort of like the superstar players taking it for granted that they they got preferential treatment or whatever? Now they're sort of like using it even more to their advantage. Yeah, I think they are certainly using it more to their advantage. But um, you know, there's a situation where there's a set of rules in place so that um, you know some of these teams can keep these star players, and and for whatever reason. Uh, you know, they're, it's almost like they're colluding together to to all go to one team when when they're not supposed to be. So, uh, you know, obviously, um, you know, it, it, the, the system that they have in place is not working. Absolutely, yeah, that's for sure. Now, what about uh, Phil Jackson? What kind of interaction did you have with him? Phil Jackson was one of those people that wasn't a big uh, yeller, screamer, or cursor. He was just one of those guys that would make some sarcastic statements to you as you ran up and down the floor to to try to get the benefit of the calls from you. And, uh, you know, he, he was good at, uh, you know, playing that game within the game with the referees. But, uh, you know, for the most part, uh, he wasn't, uh, you know, one of those real yellers and screamers like a Larry Brown or, or Jerry Sloan. I find it interesting that he does a lot of sort of uh, sort of mind games like in the in the press conferences and stuff before the series starts. Especially you saw a lot this uh, this playoff series where he sort of plants the seed 
in the referees' minds to closely watch certain players and stuff like that. Well, I mean, he's he's one of the masters, and uh, he uses the media to get his messages across, not only to the league office, but to the referees to look for certain things. And, and when something uh, hits the media like that, he knows the referees read the newspapers just like everybody else. So uh, if he brings it up, maybe it's a, it's a point of emphasis that it will jump out at a referee, uh, you know, a little bit quicker and, and uh, a little bit faster than some other things. So he... Uh, you know, he plays those mind games, and it obviously has helped him along the years. Now, uh, talk a little bit about the story that you have in the book about uh, Jeff Van Gundy and and uh, the playoff series there against the Mavericks and um, how there was, like, some inside information that got funneled out and then got out into the press, and it really could have been a huge scandal, but the NBA kind of covered the whole thing up. So I guess talk a little bit about that because, that you know, that's almost the closest we have to some kind of tangible proof about what really is going on. Right, I believe it was in 2005. Uh, Houston was up two games to none on Dallas with the series moving to Houston, and I was uh, an alternate referee in Game Three. And uh, Mark Cuban was launching a uh, enormous amount of complaints about certain things. And uh, you know, I was in a meeting, and, and they showed videotape, and, and they basically said that they wanted illegal screens and traveling called on Yao Ming. Uh, because um, of the complaints by Mark Cuban, and if he so much as moved his pivot foot a little bit while setting a screen or or uh, you know making a move to the basket, they wanted the violation called on him. And uh, you know, um, it was a situation where uh, the referees knew that uh, you know the league office wanted Dallas to to come back in the series, and Dallas won the the next two games and ended up winning in Game Seven. Yeah, it seems like the league really is, has it out for Mark Cuban in a way. Uh, and then, and then what? Well, I guess talk a little bit about how Van Gundy sort of revealed the inside information, and then the NBA covered it up. He did. He uh, he basically was getting the information that uh, the referees were going to make these calls from the group supervisor on the series, who was Don Vaden, who had talked to him by telephone a number of times, and. Uh, you know, had told him that this was going to take place, and he just became frustrated that he lost the next two games and, and went public and said a league official told him that uh, they were going to concentrate on calling certain things on Yao Ming. And, uh, you know, he was fined uh, $100,000 because he wouldn't reveal what league official told him. Uh, but but I knew it was Don Vaden because uh, he had told me that he had talked to him several times on the telephone. So... Uh, you know, it was something that the, the league came out a couple of days later and said that Jeff Van Gundy misspoke and he had never talked to a league official, which was, you know, just their way of covering it up. Yeah. Now, you, you say that the, the result of the FBI investigation did sort of yield some sort of suspect individuals, but that the FBI didn't really follow up on them. What do you, what, what, what do you make of that whole thing? Uh, I think it was a situation where, uh, you know, the NBA is very powerful and, and certain things, uh, you know, weren't going to be revealed in this whole investigation because, um, you know, they just wanted to paint me as the one bad apple and have this thing brushed away as quickly as possible. And I think that uh, they were able to accomplish that. Now, in light of what you know, do you think that you were the only one sort of like mixed up in funneling out inside information? Or is this something you think that actually, you know, is a, is a more prevalent occurrence? Well, the information that was passed along to me was that they had no information that other referees were, were uh, betting on games, but uh, the information was so uh, easily obtainable and, and certainly discussed by so many different people that, uh, you know, there's no way that it wasn't passed along by other referees. Yeah.
Talk a little bit about the female referees, because I thought that's, this was a really interesting aspect of the book, too, that, uh, you know, I'd always noticed the one female referee that, that's still around and wondered kind of like how, how she ended up even in the NBA, but you sort of lay out how she and another female official ended up becoming referees for the NBA, and, and, and I just found that kind of interesting, because you don't see any female umpires or female, you know, football referees or anything like that. It was a situation where there was one woman who wanted to pursue the fact of being an NBA referee, and uh, I, I guess there were some uh, deflammatory uh, um, reports written about her that were discovered, and, and she ended up suing the league for sexual discrimination. And uh, while that whole lawsuit was going on, uh, the NBA went out and, and found the two top college referees uh, in, in the women's game and actually uh, hired them uh, on the NBA staff quicker than you could ever imagine uh, you know, to help with that lawsuit. And, and I think that the uh, woman originally won an enormous amount of money and, and then the NBA appealed it and uh, you know, she was just given uh, her attorney fees in, in a settlement. So it, it was very strange how they and why they were hired, but uh, you know, they certainly uh, weren't the top qualified candidates to be hired at the time. Yeah, yeah, you make the case that, you know, the NBA could bring in really qualified college officials, but they don't want to take the pay cut um, or something like that as far as uh, or deal with the headaches of, of being an NBA referee. Right, and you, you go, you, you, when you really look at certain things, you know, how do you, uh, you know, when you want to hire the most qualified referees to bring them into the NBA, how is it possible that you um, can go and hire two college referees out of the women's game when you have an enormous amount of, uh, you know, male referees at the top of the college game where, uh, you know, the women's game is just so much slower and even the male college game is so much slower than the NBA that, that you go and find two female referees out of nowhere and, and hire them onto the staff. It just was very strange. I guess talk a little bit about your decision to cooperate with the FBI like when did you obviously I know this because I've read the book but when how did you come to the decision to you know stop running I guess you could say and and just uh, play ball with the FBI as you knew they were kind of starting to look at your at what you've been doing well it was a situation where um, you know I had gone to an attorney because I knew there were some grand jury hearings that were being convened and uh, um, my attorney actually spoke to the United States attorney, and, and he basically just, uh, you know, told my attorney to give me a message. And that message was that uh, he knew what I did and, and when I did it and who I did it with. And it was just a matter of time before they came and got me. And I was much better off losing my job uh, rather than losing my job for a long, long time. So I needed to make a decision as to whether I wanted to talk to them immediately or, or whether I just wanted to wait and see what happened. And, and I thought it was uh, in my best interest and in my family's best interest for me to go to them and talk to them immediately. Now, as this thing was like about to break, did you have any realization of just how massive this story was going to turn out to be uh, once once it all got out into the press? No, I didn't. I think I was a little bit naive, uh, you know, with how it was all going to play out. And uh, I think that I got a clear dose of reality when, uh, you know, there were several hundred news vans parked outside my house waiting for me to come out. So, uh, you know, it was something I thought and hoped would die down, but it certainly didn't. And, uh, you know, even to this day, uh, you know, I get an enormous amount of requests for um, uh, interviews in regard to the story about what I did and how I did it. So, um, you know, that was one of the thoughts behind writing the book and putting it out there so that people could really have a, a good understanding. Yeah, yeah. 
how'd you feel about the coverage of it all? I mean, you were like you you were like wall to wall all over the ESPN and everything else for for quite a while uh, when all this went down. Like watching it, you know, as the player in the whole thing, and then watching it on TV. How'd you feel about the coverage? I mean, I'm sure you were you were crucified in a lot of places. So, I mean, what was that like? Uh, you know, it, it was sickening because you know you you basically have to. Uh, look in the mirror and, and admit that you certainly made some terrible and dumb choices. And, uh, you know, not only did those choices affect you, but they, they affected the people that you love the most, and that's your, your family. And uh, when you talk about the disappointment that I, um, you know, caused my mother and father and my kids and, and my ex-wife, it's it's something where, you know, you certainly wish you could go back and turn back time, but we all know that you can. And and unfortunately for me, I think about it every night when I put my head on the pillow and I, and I wake up wishing it was a nightmare, but it, uh, it's certainly not. It's reality. So I'm, I'm trying to turn a, a very negative situation into somewhat of a positive situation and sharing my story with others and, and hoping that they realize how, uh, you know, terrible choice can affect us all. So, uh, you know, to stay away from, uh, you know, uh, crossing that line. Absolutely. Yeah. Now talk about the difficult, conversation you had with your dad uh when you when you told him about all this because uh i know he was he was a referee in the college level um you know so it was sort of like a, a generational thing and and, and, uh, and you know he was profoundly disappointed by what happened so i guess talk a little bit about how difficult that was uh believe it or not it was father's day 2007 and i called him to wish him a happy father's day and he he sensed a, a tone in my voice to where something was wrong and he, he kept pressing me and, and it, you know, was a situation where I just broke down and told him what I had done. And, uh, you know, um, like any father that would support their son or daughter, he, he basically told me that, uh, you know, obviously it was a, a poor choice, but he was going to stand by me and help me any way that he could. And then he did, uh, you know, and, and so did my mother and they, and they still do to this day. So, uh, you know, I'm very fortunate that I have a, a great family and a, um, good circle of friends that I'm still in touch with that have supported me and, and hopefully are going to see me back on my feet soon. Did he ever put the picture back up? No, he, he didn't put the picture back up, um, and, you know, and I kind of don't blame him. It's a, it's a reminder of, you know, what I did, uh, you know, to, to um, you know, the situation that I was basically, uh, you know, involved with and, and the great job that I had. So, uh yeah, uh, it, it's a situation where um, you know that article that was in the newspaper that was in the frame, uh, you know, never went back up on the wall, and, and rightfully so. Talk a little bit about uh, life in prison. You know, I know you were not to revisit this too much, but I know that you, you know, fell victim to you know an attack. Was the was that motivated? You think by legitimate sort of nefarious forces, or was it more just some guy trying to make a name for himself? Uh, you know, in, in the prison yard. Well, I think it's a situation where, you know, when you're going into a federal prison and you're a cooperating witness and it's, and it's plastered all over the news that, you know, I was a little naive that, you know, people weren't going to really um, know about that. And, and, you know, there's people that have been in prison for a long, long time because somebody cooperated against the, uh, them. So, you know, right away I was labeled a rat and, and, you know, nobody wanted to hang with me or talk to me. And, uh, you know, then you get some nut that, like you said, wants to make a name for himself and claim that he's associated with organized crime and, and wants to attack me. And, and, and that's basically what happened. Now, but you do say that when the whole story broke that you did get like a threatening phone call. Were you threatened, you know, by nefarious people out there or even the NBA, uh, you know, about all this? Uh, you know, there were times where I did receive some threats, um, and, uh, you know, even to this day, I, I've met with local FBI agents here that, uh, you know, are just, 
you know, briefing me on the surroundings of, of this area and, um, you know, knowing that, uh, you know, when I do go out that I have to be aware of where I'm at and, and who's around me and, and just to have a, um, a mindset that, um, you know, to know where uh, my surroundings are. So, um, you know, it's something that I certainly aren't going to live my life in fear constantly, but uh, it has to be in the back of my mind just to, uh, you know, be be made aware of, uh, you know, where I'm at and what I'm doing. Yeah, yeah. That must wear on you after a while, though, I'm sure. Uh, it, it it does, uh, but hopefully over time it's a, it's a something that will uh, wear a little bit less. Absolutely, yeah. You know, that's that's the hope, right? Yep. What do you think needs to be done in the wake of of your revelations uh, as far as the NBA goes? You know, I think that they need to hire the most qualified referees that they can get. I think that they have to allow the referees to enforce the rules based on how they're written in the rule book, and uh, you know, not referee. Uh, certain personalities or big market teams and, and have the fans realize that everybody's being treated the same way and, and that moving forward it's going to be a true athletic competition and not a form of entertainment. There were some allegations that the NBA tried to squash your book or, or keep it from being published. I know on the on the back of the book it says, uh, quotes Deadspin, says the book the NBA doesn't want you to read. What kind of hassle did you get from the NBA when you were putting the book out? Uh, I did have a contract with Triumph uh, Publishing, which was an imprint of Random House, and uh, I think about two weeks or a week before the book was actually supposed to hit the shelves, uh, it was vetted uh, by Triumph. They were very, very excited. They they flew out to New York and, and discussed the book with FBI agents and were, uh, you know, very confident that everything in the book was true. And, uh, you know, right before it was supposed to come out, uh, some league representatives had some meetings with people at Random House, and, and at the last minute they canceled the book. And, uh, you know, uh, we were told that uh, there were threats of lawsuits, and, uh, you know, the NBA league officials also went in to discuss, uh, you know, the airing of the 60 Minutes episode, but, uh, you know, they didn't quite listen or, or weren't scared away as quickly as Random House was. I know in the book you say the NBA was chasing you down for restitution on your salary and everything like that. How did that all shake out? Well, uh, you know, it's a situation where I owe them uh, $200,000. Uh, the judge ordered that prior to, you know, the book coming out and, and just with, uh, you know, what they had, uh, you know, threw out in court. Uh, they tried to get $1.4 million from me, and the judge lowered it down to about $200,000. And to this day, uh Anything that I make, uh, you know, a major portion of it goes towards that restitution. Oh, like all profits from the book and stuff like that? Profits from the book or whatever job that I'm, I may work or whatever uh, until that restitution is paid off, uh, you know, that the government continues to, you know, track my income. Yeah. When you were sort of like under the thumb of uh, this, uh, of Batista, who's the guy who, was, who claimed to have mafia ties and everything like that, you thought you'd kind of could get out from under it eventually. Did you think about just sort of like pick, making bad picks over and over again, or was it sort of the thing where you were in kind of danger of being, you know, your family being hurt or something crazy happening to you if uh, if you didn't play ball? Yeah, it was a situation where I just, you know, had hoped to give them the um, winning picks that they were getting behind my back uh, um, prior and just at the end of the season, uh, you know, being a situation where it was just all forgotten and, uh, you know, that I was never going to do it again. And uh, I thought the best way to do that was to continue to provide them with winning picks and, and hope that it would all go away. And, and unfortunately, uh, you know, that's not the way it all unfolded. 
Well, you do make the case. Uh, I don't know if it was you that made the case, or if it was Mark Cuban or someone else that that thinks that the that the referees should be sort of like a wholly independent organization apart from the NBA. That's that's that way. There wouldn't be this kind of collusion. Uh, is that even possible? Do you think, or is that something the NBA would never let happen? Uh, I don't think it's something that the NBA would ever let happen because that would, uh, you know, take a lot of control, uh, you know, out of their hands, and, and they have. Uh, seem to be able to control everything. So, um, you know, I, I think that it would be the best scenario for everybody involved, but I just don't think that that's a possibility at this time. Yeah, yeah, it seems that way because they, they want to make sure that what they want to happen happens, I guess, right? Right. I found it interesting, too, that uh, when you first start in the NBA, they have that they have like a new rule going on, and then the referees sort of um, – like stop enforcing the rule because it was ruining the flow of the game or something like that. I just found it kind of interesting that it's like, even though you're under the auspices of the NBA, there's still quite a bit of control going on out there where the referees, if they don't want to enforce the rules, they, they won't. No, I mean, certain, like I said before, certain referees, uh, you know, enforce certain rules and certain referees don't. And it's just the subjectivity about, you know, who the referee is and how many years of experience and whether he referees in the NBA finals or not is, is whether the league comes down and reprimands him or not. And, you know, hand checking is, is a prime example. Some people enforce it and, and some referees don't. They feel like it's a deterrent and, uh, you know, it, it hurts the game and slows the game down. So it's, uh, it's a situation where they need to get all these referees on the same page and uh, have them enforce the rules based upon how they're written in the book. Now, let's say somebody's watching an NBA game. You know, they've, they've heard this interview and they're watching an NBA game. What kind of stuff should they be looking for as, you know, signs of, uh, of the game within the game being played? Well, I, I think that, um, you know, right now a lot of that stuff is, is probably going to be taken out of the, uh, of the league. But, you know, certainly you can see how coaches and, and, and players will yell and scream in a referee and, and the next time down the floor that referee will give that team a game, uh, give that team a call or that player a call. And, uh, you know, it was obvious this year I saw it happen a, a lot in the playoffs. And, and I think if you really look for that, when a coach like Doc Rivers screams at a referee, uh, you know, the next time down the floor, uh, you know, if he screams at him again, uh, he'll, he'll most likely get a call to get, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, that referee to get him off his back. Now, I noticed, too, during the uh, the playoffs this year that, and I'm sure you'll know this, uh, that now they have some kind of, like, instant replay in the last minute or something like that. When did that come about? And, uh, you know, what was the reasoning behind that? And wh- how do you think that affects the, the the you know the uh, the culture of bias. Uh, I, I think that it's gonna um, it's gonna help it in in regard to that. You know, referees will now know that uh, you know there's a system in place that uh, you know will embarrass them if they're out there making the wrong calls or, or letting some other influence uh, affect what they're going to call. So I think it's a situation where it's, it's certainly going to help the game and and help the league and help the fans think that uh, things can be overturned if they're not correct. So uh, I think you're going to see uh, little by little more of that take place. Now, was this something that came about uh, as a result of your whole of, of what happened with you? You know what? I'm not sure. I think it was new this year, and I'm not sure why it, it, it became uh, you know a part of the game. So uh, you know, it's a, it's a situation where I'm not really uh, you know in the inside anymore, knowing why these things are taking place. Yeah, yeah. Does seem sort of ironic, though, don't you? <laughs> sure, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, in a way it's probably good because it, it keeps that sort of thing in check. But I can't imagine that they'd ever expand it to, like, the full game or anything crazy like that. 
I think it would just slow it down uh, too much. I think at, at some point there might be a situation where, uh, you know, just like in the NFL, uh, a coach can throw a red flag out onto the floor and, and allow the, the play to be, uh, you know, reviewed. And, and if he's right, that he can keep his time out and, and, the, and the call can be overturned. I think, uh, you know, sometime in the future you may see something like that. Yeah, yeah. That seems like that might be the case uh, eventually. All right, well, the, the book's – you know, you're back in, in, in society, you're on probation, but you're, you know, you're back out, out there now. What are you up to nowadays aside from promoting the book? Um, you know, what, what, what have you been up to? You know, I'm, uh, you know, in a situation where, um, I'm giving some speeches trying to share my story with, um, some people that suffer from gambling addictions and, and hopefully get on the, uh, you know, college campus tour to where, um, you know, I can let people know that we certainly have those choices to make in life and how important they are uh, to make the right ones and, and talk about, you know, ethics and, and how I certainly was at the top of my game, but because of uh, some poor decisions that I made that, uh, you know, I basically hit rock bottom and, and I'm starting to come back uh, on my feet with the help of some good friends and, uh, and a great family. So, you know, I think that uh, there's a story to be told out there, and, and I'm hoping to share it. And do you think this culture of bias in the NBA, do you think it's going to ever go away, or is it sort of uh, just going to fade into the background now for a while, but it'll still be there? I think it's going to um, kind of fade away a little bit, but uh, I think there's always going to be somewhat of uh, a bias in the game. But, uh, you know, as far as widespread as it was before, I think it's certainly going to, uh, you know, shrink an enormous amount. Now, obviously, you, you heard, you know, positive things from people from the book. So, so you think that, you know, it's resonating at least hopefully in some of the higher channels at the NBA. Uh, there's no doubt about it. I've got a, a really a, a very positive, uh, you know, response to the book because of the message that's in the book. I know uh, a lot of people want to read about the, you know, the stuff about the NBA, but I think uh, it's also a great message there about the choices uh, that we all have to make. And, and I think that, uh, you know, that's what's really grabbing a lot of people's attention. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. I mean, the the, the stuff about the about the games and the stars and the coaches and the owners and stuff. I mean, that's that's fascinating and glamorous and stuff. But the the, the true story of you know your descent is gripping. And I I mean I can't put it over enough. Like I said, I, I read the book in about a day and a half. It was it was that engaging. So I mean I got to give you credit for that. It was it was quite a story. And I, I mean I know uh, that a lot of people in the sports world are quick to sort of, uh, you know, crucify you and, and throw you under the bus here and, and just keep, you know, labeling you as disgrace and all that stuff. But, I mean, i got to give you credit for trying to turn this thing into a positive at least, you know what I mean, and, and trying to tell your story about what happened and expose what's really going on in the NBA with this culture of bias. So, uh, you know, I wish you the best of luck and, and hats off to you uh, for stepping up and taking responsibility for what happened and what you did and trying to get on with your life and help other people through it. Well, I appreciate that very much. It means a lot. And, uh, you know, it's been great talking to you. You've given us just a ton of information here and hopefully uh, pulled the curtain back a little bit on the NBA for the fans who are listening. And, and, you know, like I said at the beginning of the show, we've had a lot of people on here who allege conspiracy and stuff like that, but we've never had anybody on who was sort of like right in the mix of it. So to provide that kind of perspective is really invaluable. And uh, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show, Tim. Anytime. I appreciate it. That does it for this week's edition of BOA Audio Season 5. Big, big, super huge thanks, of course, to Tim Donaghy for coming on the show. You can find out more about his story via his book, Personal Foul, A First-Person Account of the Scandal, 
that rocked the NBA. Just punch in personal foul in Amazon.com or BarnesandNoble.com. You'll be able to find it there. Or just go down to your bookstore. I'm sure they have it on their shelves. And all the great folks out there who are first-time listeners to the program, checked out this interview with Tim Donaghy because they were interested in his story. Hopefully some of you stick around. Hopefully some of you dig into the BOA Audio Archive and check out some of our previous interviews and episodes. If you're into the paranormal, you are in for a treat because we cover just about everything under the sun in the world of the strange and mysterious So dig on into BOA Audio, stick around for our upcoming episodes because we've got some great stuff on tap. And shoot me an email if you're a first-time listener and you've discovered us and you're getting into the program. Love to hear from you. Speaking of which, of course, it is now time for BOA Audio listener feedback. But since this episode is way overdue and I want to get it out to people as fast as possible, plus I want to in turn get started on next week's edition of the program let's askew boa audio listener feedback this time around that said of course i do want to hear from all the folks out there whether you're first time listeners or long time listeners of the program here are the methods to get in touch with me you can just go to banalofamerica.com b-i-n-n-a-l-l of america.com and click the contact button or punch in boaaudio at hotmail.com to your email machine, and that'll get an email off to me in no time flat. Or you can join up at the official BOA forum, theusofe.com, T-H-E-U-S-O-F-E.com. Great group of folks on there talking about the paranormal, the esoteric, and pop culture as well. Quite a fun community, and we're always welcoming newcomers to our little gang there at the US of E. We like to call it BOA's Paranormal Playground. Come on over and join in on the conversations. And as I've been pointing out the last few weeks, you can always reach me via MySpace, Facebook, or Twitter. Just punch in Benal, B-I-N-N-A-L-L. Befriend me, follow me, poke me. It's all good. I want to hear feedback from all the great folks out there. Who tuned into this week's episode, who are looking forward to the remaining portions of the final four of season five. We've got some awesome stuff for you on tap in the next few weeks. I'll be talking a little bit about that in just a few moments. And we'll bring back BOA Audio listener feedback in full force next week. I'll try and do at least three emails because the mailbag is definitely overflowing here as we head towards the close of season five. Up next, it is the thanks portion of the show. Allow me to roll through the list of the esteemed and infamous BOA staff. Leslie, Chiron, Regan Lee, Joe V, Tina Senna, Rochelle Hawks, Richard Thomas, Marla Pena, our contributing cartoonist Andy Carolin, and our webmaster Jeremy Boston. It's been about two weeks since you've heard from me, so there's tons of stuff at Been All of America right now for your reading enjoyment. I could go down the list, but it would take us quite a while. I can tell you right now, there's a couple of new editions of Grey Matters from Leslie. We've got Marla Pena weighing in on the previous edition of BOA Audio with Tony Kale talking about Santa Muerte, Mexico's mysterious saint of death. Marla Pena comes from Mexico and shares her perspective on the scene down there south of the border. 
Plus, we've got a fresh edition of Trickster's Realm from Regan Lee talking about invoking the memory synchronicities of retrieving missing time and eagle iconography. And just a throwback to Leslie's Grey Matter, she talks about Christopher Hitchens and his fight with cancer, as well as shares a really cool story about her very strange 4th of July. Those are two new Grey Matters from Leslie at BOA, and I think that covers the columns at the website for the last few weeks. Plus, we've got a couple of new editions of the Popcast Initiative, our pop culture podcast that I host with Jeremy Vaney. That thing is really taking off. We're getting a lot of great feedback from folks who are tuning into the Popcast Initiative and getting to see a whole different side of BOA and JV. I've been saying it all season long here at the end of the program, but it is true, my friends. If you're only listening to BOA Audio and you're not reading the columns at Been All of America, then you're only getting half the story. BOA, make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. I know a lot of folks out there have been waiting quite a while for this week's edition of the program. Personally, I feel kind of like a slacker. I feel like a clown for taking so long to get this thing out to you, but... I have to take side work to keep the whole operation going. I got to do a lot of little extra gigs to help make sure Banal of America stays up and running and freely available for all the great folks out there. And that's why here at the end of the program, every week we turn to you folks who have some disposable income and some change to throw in the bucket, and we ask you to make a donation to Banal of America. There's two ways to do it. You can just go to BOA and click the PayPal button. That'll bring you to PayPal. You can do one of those digital payment type deals. Very fast, very clean, very secure, and very simple to do. They'll walk you through the whole process. For the folks who don't trust the internet, they want to donate via snail mail. We've made that possible for you now. You can mail your donations to the following address. Tim Benall. B is in Boston. I-N-N-A-L-L. P.O. Box 232 Pinehurst, Mass, 01866. Let me roll through that one more time, getting a little more detailed for you. Tim Benall, P.O. Box 232, Pinehurst, spelled P-I-N-E-H-U-R-S-T, Mass, 01866. So all together again, that's Tim Benall, P.O. Box 232, Pinehurst, Mass, 01866. As always, no donation is too small, and all donations go towards Benall of America and BOA Audio to keep the entire franchise up and running, freely available and commercial-free for all of our great readers and listeners the world over. Next week on the program, we continue onward with the final four of Season 5, guest number two. We welcome legendary ufologist Dr. Bruce Maccabee in an interview That really is a long time coming. I'm stunned that we're all the way here into Season 5, and we're finally getting Dr. Bruce McAbee on the program. He's been researching the UFO phenomenon since the late 1960s, and we're going to walk through his remarkable 40-plus year career chasing down the mystery of UFOs. We'll find out how he got into this, how his perspective on the phenomenon has changed over the years, some of the key cases he's investigated, his back-and-forth relationship with notable skeptic Phil Klass, 
We'll talk about photo analysis of UFOs and a whole bunch of other stuff. I haven't sat down to edit it yet, but I can tell you that it is really a remarkable conversation and definitely jam-packed with a ton of historical UFO information as well as insight into a number of critical cases surrounding this enigma. So that's Dr. Bruce McAbee, guest number two in the final four of season five, next week on BOA Audio. I promise you are not going to be waiting a very long time for that edition of the program, folks, because we are really only about 48 hours away from wrapping up principal recording of Season 5, meaning that there will be no more interviews taped after this coming Monday. We will have all of the conversations for Season 5 in the can, in the books, which means then I can sit down Monday night and just start pushing them out assembly line style. So I don't expect any more lengthy delays between the episodes as we move forward here in August. And I can tell you right now, because the season finale has already been taped, it is epic, my friends. I'm not going to reveal the guest's name right now, but if you go to Banal of America and just look at our logo, we've got an animated logo that I've been told essentially reveals who the season finale guest is. So head on over to BOA, take a look at the logo. It will animate itself for you, and you'll get an idea of who you'll be hearing from on Banal of America as we close the book on Season 5. And on that note, we close the book on this week's edition of the program. So let me once again thank Tim Donaghy for coming on the show and opening up and giving us so much information on the scandal that rocked the NBA Thanks to all the great folks out there listening, the hardcore BOA audio listeners who stuck with this program, even though it is off the beaten path of what we normally discuss. And, of course, thanks to all the great folks out there who are checking us out for the first time ever. I hope you enjoyed the program, and I hope you stick around for more BOA audio. And as we do here at the end of every program, super huge thanks to all of the great BOA audio listeners. Whether you tuned into this program or not, whether you skipped this episode or whether you checked it out, it's totally cool with me. If you skipped it, you're not listening, you're not hearing me anyway, but whatever. I want to thank all the great BOA Audio listeners out there. You guys are the best, the fuel that drives the BOA machine. If not for you, there would be no program. Believe me, that is a fact that is not lost on me. So thank you for making BOA Audio a part of your esoteric audio playlist. And until next time, this is Tim Benal, thanking you for listening and signing off.